final week of a teaching series we've been in called The Gift, and we're talking about the wise men and the gifts that they brought to Jesus um, at that first Christmas and uh, the significance of those gifts. As the wise men, they're a common part of our kind of Christmas traditions, our Christmas stories, our songs, our nativity scenes. It's like the wise men, they're there with the shepherds and the angels and Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus and the animals in the barn and, and the whole thing, right? Wise men are a part of, of that story. Um, and so we're talking about them and we kind of been doing some Christmas story or nativity scene debunking as we've gone through the story. I've maybe been ruining Christmas for some of you because uh, we said, hey, you know, there were three wise men, right? Not so much. Uh, we know they brought three gifts. There's three gifts mentioned, so we assume there's three wise men, but chances are there were more, uh, probably many more. Um, and so they're like, okay, well, that, that part's not true. And, and we're like, okay, well, but they were there. They were there when Jesus was born to see that precious little baby, right? Yeah, probably not so much. They, they didn't show up at least for a couple of weeks afterwards. Most scholars would say that um, they, they didn't show up until a year or, or two later. So Jesus is like toddler Jesus when the wise men show up. So uh, no wise men at the manger, which that also means no star above the manger. You know, or like, because it's your manger scene, your nativity up, and there's a star up there. It's like, yeah, probably not so much. I can remember growing up as a kid. Um, I grew up as a kid in the 90s. And what was all the rage were these hollow plastic nativity scenes. Anybody, anybody remember these, right? And we had them growing up, and we put them out every year. And it's funny, because my mom looks back now, and she's like, why did I ever think that was nice? And I don't know why I put it up. But everybody had them. Some people still do, and that's cool. You decorate how you want. But I can remember putting that up every year, and, and mom would always tell dad, you got to put the star up. And so there was a big maple tree on the one side of the house, because that's where the star would be sometime. Dad would be up there on the ladder, hang the star up there. Or above the garage, um, if we put the manger on that side of the house, because the star has got to be there, but actually, sorry, the wise men didn't come to the manger, so there was probably no star above the manger. And while we're on the topic of mangers, the manger actually refers to, like, an animal feeding trough where Jesus was laid, like, in the animal feeding trough, not the stable, because there was probably a cave. They kept their animals in caves out back of the house. And so no stable, no wise men, no star. It's a cave, and they put Jesus in the feeding trough. You are welcome for ruining Christmas and every nativity scene you ever see again. But regardless of how we get the details um, wrong when it comes to those things, uh, the wise men showing up and bringing gifts is a part of that story. And yeah, we've got these traditions and this nostalgia that maybe is not entirely factual, but they were there. They did present gifts. It was important. And more importantly, Matthew, who brings us that account, thinks it's important to tell us about it. Uh, Matthew, the gospel writer Matthew, is one of four gospel accounts we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew was an eyewitness to the life of Jesus. Um, and, and so he was one of Jesus' original 12 followers, 12 disciples that got to follow Jesus everywhere. And so he writes account, an account. He was there. He saw it. He talked to the people. He would have known Mary and said, hey, what, you know, what exactly happened? Tell me about this story with the wise men and the magi. Um, and he is intentional about including these details. We've been saying throughout the series, and I want, I, I want to say this all the time, that the gospel writers, the, the authors of Scripture, they didn't do anything on accident. Right? Like, so they didn't just uh, record random details. Everything they included was intentional. It was well-crafted. They did it on purpose. That The gospel authors, they're not just doing history. They're not content to just tell us what happened. They're also doing some theology. They want to tell us what it means. They'll say, yes, this is what happens, but they want to present it in such a way that communicates significance. Uh, and so as it, it relates to these gifts that the wise men brought, that is what they're doing. And more than just historically did the wise men bring gifts, Matthew wants us to see what these gifts represent. 
what do they point to? What do they foreshadow? They foreshadow something about who this child was, who this child would grow up to be, and, and the things that he would accomplish. They, they, they end up being a completion of some of these Old Testament um, prophecies and things that were predicted. And, and so Matthew is doing that. He's setting that up. And so when we look at these gifts so far, we've looked at frankincense. Uh, frankincense it points to Jesus as the high priest. Uh, frankincense was an incense that was burnt in the temple worship. So the high priest would burn frankincense. It would go up before God as a fragrant offering, as a representation of the prayers of the people before God. And so uh, this, this gift of frankincense points this reality that Jesus is now the high priest, that he's seated at the right hand of God, and he is interceding for us. He's, he's like the go-between between us and God. So we have direct access to God now because Jesus is our high priest. And last week we talked about myrrh. Uh, myrrh was a spice that was used um, for preparing a body for burial. Uh, so it was a sign of, of death. It was a sign of suffering. It points to Jesus as the suffering servant. Uh, that the prophet Isaiah spoke of the promised one, the one who was going to come and deliver them, and said that, that he would be a suffering servant. He would die for the sins of his people. And so they bring myrrh to point to that reality. The final gift, it's the final gift, actually it's listed as the first gift, but it's the final one we're, we're talking about because it's kind of like, uh, like the culmination is gold. It's gold. Uh, so we're going to talk about gold today. And throughout this series, uh, as, as if you've been here through the whole thing, whenever you leave, you've been getting a little piece. You got a little piece of frankincense the first week and a little piece of myrrh last week. Uh, we want this to be a visual reminder that you can see, that you can hold, that you can touch, that you can smell. So this Christmas season, you are reminded of just these, these identities of Jesus and who he is and how incredible he is. And so today, on your way out, you are going to get a little piece of gold. Not true. You're going to get a little piece of pyrite, okay? <laughs> you, you think we're handing out real gold as a visual aid at church? Come on. Listen, if you want us to hand out real pieces of gold, y'all are going to have to give a lot more to this church, okay? And so by cash or check, there's a box on the wall, or you can go to hopecommunityonline.org, and the next time we talk about the wise men, we'll give out real gold. Just kidding. We wouldn't even do that because we could spend money on much, uh, much more impactful things. But anyway, gold. So you're going to get pyrite, all right? It was either that or the little chocolate coins, and I... I felt like this was more authentic, okay? <laughs> uh, but gold, gold may be the gift that when we think about, okay, it might seem the most obvious or the most intuitive to us because gold points to Jesus as the king. And that, uh, we're not really familiar with frankincense or myrrh, but gold and kingship, we're like, oh yeah, that makes sense because throughout human history, gold has been kind of a symbol of kingship, of high value, a gift for a king. And so they have carry a gold scepter and wear a gold crown and there's these ornate thrones. And like, okay, gold equals kingship. And so the wise men bring gold to declare that Jesus is the king. And not just a king, but the king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, and specifically the long-awaited Messiah from the line of David. Messiah means the anointed one. It's this, this idea that is, uh, is kind of developed in the Old Testament. What we call the Old Testament was the Jewish scripture, the Hebrew Bible. And they had this idea of, of Messiah, the one who was promised, the one who was anointed, the one who would come to deliver them, uh, the anointed one. So whenever a king was crowned or was uh, said to be the next king, they, they would have the ceremony and they would anoint them. They would usually anoint their head with oil. And so Messiah means anointed one. Jesus is this anointed king. And as we read throughout the biblical story, as we encounter the New Testament then, we read the term Christ. So Jesus Christ, that's not his last name. Uh, that's actually the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. And so when we read Jesus Christ, it's not his name, it's his title. It's Jesus the Messiah, the one, the anointed one, this one that has been told about, this one that has been foreshadowed. And so the Jewish people have been waiting and waiting and waiting for their Messiah 
to show up. Their anointed one, their deliverer, the one who would free them. At the time of Jesus, the, the Jewish people sat under Roman subjugation and Roman rule. And so the Roman Empire was, was coming into power uh, in this, this little area where Jesus was from, this area of Palestine and, and, and Judea. It was under Roman authority. And so they were not really their own sovereign nation. Um, and it had been that way for a long time. Before the, the Romans, there was Greek influence. Alexander the Great came through. And if you're familiar with that period of history, his empire gets divided up among four of his generals. And so they're empowered. And before them, it was the Persians. And before them, it was the Babylonians. And so at this point, the nation of Israel has been under foreign rule for, for generation after generation after generation for hundreds of years. And they were waiting for the one who would come and fix all that, that would set them free and establish them as a nation again and, and, and put them in a place of prominence. They, they were waiting for their king, for their Messiah to show up. And they were hoping on a promise that had been made, made to them generations before, that in their history it was promised that this Messiah would come, that a king would come, that he would come from the line of David and establish a kingdom that would reign forever and ever. And so what I want to do is I want to look at, at, at some of those passages in the Old Testament and then bring it back to our focus on the story with the wise men. And so this promise is made and found in, uh, very clearly in the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. So what we're going to look at is 2 Samuel, um, starting we're going to be in chapter 7, uh, just for a minute. We're going to go there, we're going to go to Isaiah, then we're going to land back in Matthew chapter 2 in case you want to follow along. It's going to be up on the screen as well. But 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, we have a message that's being delivered to King David. It's God speaking to King David through the prophet Nathan. And we pick up on this idea of the king that was uh, awaited. And here's what we read. So 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 12, God talking to David says, When your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, that means when you die, I will raise up after you your descendant, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so there's two things that are going on here. There's the immediate context, and then there's also this long-term promise. In the immediate context, he says, I'm going to raise up, you know, a, a descendant from you, and he's going to come from your body, and he's going to build a house for my name. Talking about the construction of the temple in Jerusalem. And so that was kind of this immediate thing. The temple would be built by David's son, Solomon. Uh, David has this, this vision, this dream, this desire to build a temple, a permanent uh, dwelling place for God where the people can gather for worship and sacrifice. And God says, you're not going to be the one to do this, David. Your son is going to do this, and that's Solomon. So Solomon, when he becomes king, he undertakes this huge building project that takes years and years and years, and it's massive, and it's like extravagant, and there's all this gold, and he builds the temple. And so we see that part of the promise, that he's going to build a house for my name. But then he says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so there's the immediate, but then there's also God saying, hey, David, you and your descendants, like this kingdom and this line, this lineage of this kingdom will go on forever. There will be an eternal kingdom with an eternal king. And he continues and says, my faithful love will never leave him as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed before you. And so in Israel's history, the first king of the nation of Israel was a guy by the name of Saul. He starts off pretty good, doing the right thing, and then he goes crazy and off the rails and turns his back on God. And God uh, removes Saul and, and anoints David to be the next king. And so Saul's uh, line is cut off. It won't be Saul. It won't be his sons. It won't be his family that are the kings. 
But God is saying here to David, that's not going to happen with you. No matter, no matter what happens, my, my love, my faithful love, this commitment I'm making to you, this covenant that I'm making with you, that a king will come from your line and establish a kingdom that rules forever. That, that's a promise that you can take to the bank. It's going to happen. Your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. Forever and forever and forever. And so this promise comes along. This promise is, is given. And it's a promise that gets repeated throughout the Old Testament. It gets repeated, especially when we get to the time of, of the prophets. Because this promise is given to David, and, and then his, his son Solomon is born. David dies, and, and Solomon becomes king of Israel. And things seem great. Like, like the, the nation of Israel is kind of at its pinnacle at that point in terms of influence and power and military might and wealth. Solomon was incredibly wealthy. He builds this, the temple. Then he builds this huge, elaborate like, palace for him to live in. And people come to him and ask for wisdom. And it's like, yes, this is the king. This must be the kingdom that God promised. But then things go downhill really, really fast. Solomon get, begins to, to worship the, the gods of the nations around him. And that leads to the unraveling of the nation of Israel. When Solomon, after Solomon dies, the nation of Israel divides into two. The northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, and each kingdom would have its own king, and it was just mostly one story after another of terrible king and terrible king and corrupt, corruption and wickedness and worshiping false gods. And uh, the northern kingdom of Israel goes downhill faster, but the southern kingdom eventually gets there as well. To the point where the Assyrian, uh, the nation of Assyria, the Assyrian army comes in, conquers the northern kingdom, carries a bunch of people into Assyria, and then eventually the kingdom uh, of Babylon comes and conquers the southern kingdom. Uh, and, and this kingdom, this, the kingdom of Israel that was supposed to be established forever and ever, it's like it is no more. So what do we do with this promise? But throughout that era, God raises up these prophets that speak on his behalf to his people. And they constantly remind them of these promises. They say, God's not forgotten about you. This is still going to happen. The kingdom will come. The king will come. It will be established. And so we see these and one of the most famous ones is actually probably what's the most famous like Christmas uh, prophecy. It's found in uh, the book of Isaiah. It's Isaiah chapter 9. This is what we read. It says, for a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us. The government will be on his shoulders. And he will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And the dominion, the dominion of, of his kingdom, of this, this child that will be born, the dominion will be vast. Its prosperity will never end. And he will reign on the throne of David, one from the line of David. And he will reign over his kingdom and establish it and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. And so in the midst of an incredibly dark time in the nation's history, this reminder comes from God, I have not forgotten about you. I've not forgotten about the promise. The kingdom will come. Your Messiah, the king, will show up, and he will establish uh, this kingdom of justice and righteousness that will endure forever. Imagine getting that promise in such a, a ridiculously dark time. And so as, as Isaiah is writing these words or speaking these words, depending on when you date the book of Isaiah, this is either as the northern kingdom is falling uh, to Assyria or, or right before it's going to happen. It'll just be a short time after this that the southern kingdom will fall. And so it is a time of hopelessness. It is a time of despair. It's a time where it seems like the promises of God have been forgotten. They've been lost. But God comes along with a reminder of, hey, the promise still stands. 
I will bring about your rescuer, your deliverer. The king will come. The king will come. It was this promise that was passed down for generation to generation to generation to generation. And Matthew, as we get to his gospel, when he opens up his gospels, he begins to unpack the Christmas story. As we get to Matthew's gospel and the story with the wise men, he is drawing on this theme all throughout his gospel. He, he, is, he is kind of pulling on the threads and highlighting certain things, especially in the first couple of chapters. As we remember who Matthew is writing to. So Matthew writes his gospel, his account of the life of Jesus with a primarily Jewish audience in mind. Like he wants people who, who grew up Jewish, who this is their backstory, that they are the nation of Israel, they are God's chosen people, they're, they're the Jewish people, that this is their scripture, this is their story, this is what they're familiar with, this is what their parents and their grandparents and their great-grandparents and generation after generation have been passing down this story and this heritage and they are so familiar with it Matthew wants them to see Jesus as the fulfillment of that. He portrays his gospel in such a way that points to Jesus as that Messiah, as the one who would bring the kingdom of God. And, and so he, he, he's, he's, he's so intentional. When we read Matthew's gospel, whenever it first starts off, we actually get right into this. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 starts this way. It says that this is an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Christ. And remember that, that word Christ, that's simply the idea of Messiah. This is an account, this is a genealogy of Jesus, who is the one we've been waiting for. And then he says, he is the son of David, the son of Abraham. He, he, he's the one we've been waiting for, and Matthew connects him to the right people. He says he's the son of Abraham, this promise that was given all the way back in Genesis, that, that from, the, from Abraham a family would come, and that family would turn into a nation, would be the nation of Israel and that the entire world would be blessed through them. And so he says that, that, this, that the blessing for the whole world is found in this Jesus. And then he says he's the son of David. That this is the one who is the king, who is the Messiah, who is to come from the line of David. Like Ma Matthew starts off his gospel, and he's like, this is what I want you to know. And then from there, the, the next thing you read, verse 2, it starts into this genealogy. And every time that we, we bump into a genealogy, I kind of make a joke about it because as, as modern people that aren't tuned into this, we're like, why is this here? We're like, so-and-so, son of so-and-so, son of so-and-so. I, I don't really care. Like, what, this makes no sense to me. But again, to his audience, he, he's drawing this picture of this Jesus is connected to the right people. He is who we expected. And so he, he starts his account this way, and then he has the genealogy, and then he puts this really interesting verse at the end of the genealogy. So it's bookended with son of, uh, son of David, son of Abraham, and then this in verse 17. So he's listed off all these, these names of where Jesus is connected. He says, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David until the exile in Babylon, 14 generations. And from the exile to Babylon until the Messiah, 14 generations. So from, from here to here, 14 generations, from here to here, 14 generations, from here to here, 14 generations. And if you actually look into that, um, it's not 14 generations. He, he leaves some out. And so he's not necessarily just wanting to report to us, like, the details of what happened. He's not trying to tell us, here's exactly how much time passed and exactly how you should know this. He's using the idea of 14 generations to mark these major periods in Israel's history. Uh, kind of like Acts in a play. And so it's like Act 1 is from Abraham, that promise to bless the whole world through this family to David. When it seems like, 
problem. His kingdom is here, and, and this is what we've been waiting for. And then act two is, oh no, it's all lost. I thought the kingdom was here, and I thought there was this promise that David's line would go on forever, and then it just spirals downhill, and they're carried off into exile. And then act three is exile to what's about to happen next. And so he uses this idea of 14 generations, and scholars have some uh, different kind of opinions or thoughts on why he would use the number 14. Uh, One reason is that um, 14 is a multiple of seven, and so in the Bible, seven represents completion. It's the number of completion and perfection, like something has, has come, it's, it's been completed, and so 14 is 7 and 7. It's like it carries this idea of, like, it is, it is done, it is completed. And so there, it's carrying this idea that that time period was completed, and that time period was completed, and that time period was completed, and now what's about to happen next? Uh, the other reason it's thought that he uses the, the number 14 is because, uh, so in Hebrew, uh, which King David was, you know, a uh, Jewish king, Hebrew name, in Hebrew letters are also numbers. So each letter in the Hebrew alphabet has a numerical value. And, and the Hebrew letters that spell out the name David, D-A-V-I-D, I spelled that right, I hope. Yep. <laughs> the Hebrew letters that spell out the word David, when you add them up, equal the number 14. And so this person that's at like the center of it, King David, and the one that would come in the line of him, his name equals the number 14. And so Matthew is doing all kinds of stuff in this one little verse. You know, we, we read it and we're like, eh, okay, cool. That's interesting. There's like some generations. I don't know what just happened. But Matthew's like, like, dude, like you don't even know what I'm trying to tell you right now. We're like, oh, is he talking about how long it took? And Matthew is, is thinking that is the, like, the least thing on my list of what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to say that these time periods have been completed. I'm trying to say that the one in the line of David is, is showing up on the, the planet. I mean, I'm, I'm telling you, when, when I say that the, the gospel authors don't do anything on accident, I mean it. Like, they are literary genius ninjas with how they, how they write stuff. You know, sometimes as modern people, it's easy for us to kind of look at ancient peoples and think, oh, you know, they were so uncivilized, they weren't very smart. The, the, the authors of scripture were geniuses. Like, this stuff is woven all throughout. That's why you can spend a lifetime studying scripture and, like, only beginning to scratch the surface. Uh, that you get the basic meaning of, of the love of God for you whenever you just read it the first time, but then you spend the rest of your life going, oh my gosh, I didn't know that was in there. Uh, so Matthew, man, he is just, he is highlighting so many things. And to his audience, again, not to us, but to his audience, this is like a big flashing sign. And there are, there are, there are sirens going off and like, hey, pay attention, pay attention, pay attention, because what they would hear is God is up to something He's up to something in our time, in our day, and this Jesus is at the center of it. And so you have kind of the first move, you know, from Abraham to David, and it seems like everything's going to be great, and then from David to exile, it seems like everything is lost, and now you're going to have from exile to Jesus, when the promise is truly fulfilled, when the kingdom truly comes, when the king really walks the earth. The next move was about to happen And so he's communicating to his audience, you guys need to be on the lookout. Be on the lookout for the next thing, the the promise fulfilled. And what should they be looking for? The king and the line of David. 
He has primed his, uh, his original audience to have that like right at the forefront of their brains. When he opens things up by calling Jesus the Messiah, and he's the son of David, and he's the son of Abraham, and then he lists off the, the, the genealogy, and he talks about these you know, 14 generation time periods, he has primed his original audience to be thinking, oh, we're waiting for the king, we're waiting for the king, we're waiting for the king, we're waiting for the Messiah, the one that's coming from the line of David, the one who's going to establish an eternal kingdom. And then in verse 18, I don't have it up here, but the very next thing you would read is the beginning of the Christmas story. And so after he has gotten everybody thinking, the king, the king, the king, the king, he says, now the birth of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, came about in this way. The king, the king, the king is coming, the king is coming, now the birth of Jesus came about in this way. He is setting his audience up to see Jesus as, as the king. And it's the most un- unexpected arrival of a king that, that you could imagine. Because while, while Jesus was the king that was long awaited, they've been waiting for generations, for hundreds and thousands of years, they're waiting for their king. He was the king long awaited, but he was also the king that was least expected. He didn't show up in a way that anybody would have imagined. They, they expected their king to show up, one who was, he's in the line of David, so he's going to kind of come in like the mold and model of David, a conquering warrior, military might, throw off the oppression of Rome, and, and reestablish Israel as, as you know, a, a world power kind of king. And that's not what happened. He was a king who came in an unexpected way. He was born not in the halls of power, not to a wealthy family, but born in poverty, born in a cave, born to an average family. A king who was not formerly educated, but the son of a carpenter. A king who called tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners and fishermen and zealots all the same to follow him, not the elite. He was a king who hung out and shared meals with the worst of society. He didn't wine and dine the political or religious leaders of his day. He was a king who came to serve, not to be served. And a king who came to give his life as a ransom for many. So Matthew has gotten his audience to this point where he's like, I want you thinking of the king, I want you thinking of the king, I want you thinking of the king, this thing that we've been waiting for, this thing we've been hoping for, this thing we've been dreaming for. And then when he presents who this king is, it flips all of their expectations on their head. This, the, the, through the genealogy and the gift of gold that the wise men bring, it's this flashing sign that says the king is here, but he's not the king you were expecting. And the first people who actually understand this are the most unexpected people. Because the first people who see Jesus for who he is and recognize him for who he is are the wise men. The the, the first account we have of people understanding that this is the king and he's worthy of worship and we're going to bow down uh, before him, it is the wise men. It's It's not the religious leaders, it's not the elite, it's not the Jewish people. It's these magi, these wise men who come from some foreign nation far off in the east and they don't know about the culture, they don't know about the heritage, they don't keep the Jewish laws and they're not part of the old covenant. They, it's these people that, the, the magi are, they're, they're star readers, they're dream interpreters, they're, they're astrologers, which was something, by the way, that the Old Testament like, was forbidden by and they show up, the least likely group of people, and they say, this is the true king. And it would set up just the unexpected nature of who Jesus would be and who would follow him all throughout the Gospels. And so throughout this series, we, we've been looking at the gifts and we've been looking at the wise men. Uh, but we've kind of just been using their story to kind of frame some conversation. Today, as we wrap things up, I want to read all the way through the account of the wise men coming. It's pretty short. And draw some application for us um, this Christmas season. 
And so here we go. This is Matthew chapter 2. It's going to be verses 1 through 12. Um, and I realize there's a typo here. That says Matthew chapter 1. We'll just scribble that out. That's Matthew chapter 2. Okay, so if you want to look, Matthew 2, 1 through 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, he's going to be an important player in this story, so kind of tuck that away. In the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, where is he who is born king of the Jews? So these wise men show up, and they, they know exactly who they're looking for. They're looking for the Jewish king, the king of the Jews, the Messiah that was promised, the one in the line of David. For we saw his star at its rising, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed. King Herod, not a fan of Jesus, deeply disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. And so he assembled the chief priests and the scribes, and so some more important people, I want you to just kind of tuck away for a minute. The chief priests and the scribes are the religious leaders, the one who would uh, know the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. He assembled them together and asked them where the Messiah would be born. Like, okay, this is your story. You, you're the religious leaders. You, you should know this. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him. Because this is what was written by the prophet. And, and they quote the prophet Micah, Micah 5.2. It says, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah... You are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. And Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. Spoiler alert, Herod did not want to go worship Jesus. He wanted to go kill Jesus, but again, we'll get to that. After hearing the king, they went on their way, and there it was, the star they had seen at its rising, and it, li it led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. And entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. And so in, in this account that Matthew lays out for us, we see these three distinct responses to the kingship of Jesus. And again, remember Matthew, he's, he's primed his, his original audience to be thinking, this is the king we're waiting for, this is the king we're waiting for, this is the king we're waiting for. And then he drops this account of the wise men in there, and, and it's like he's telling them, here's the responses that you can have to your king. And they're the responses of the people in the original story, and they're very much the same responses that we're confronted with to Jesus today. We see the first response that's kind of personified by King Herod, and that is King Herod was opposed to Jesus as king. But when, when King Herod heard the news that, hey, where's the king of the Jews? He, he is deeply disturbed. He is troubled. He's opposed to Jesus as king. He's like, where's the king of the Jews? He's like, I thought I was the king of the Jews. What do you mean there's another king? Herod is opposed. He, he wants to guard and protect his kingship. He, he doesn't want to see anything that is a threat to his power, to his dominion over his own kingdom. He has this attitude, you know what, I'm the king of this kingdom, and anything or anyone that is a threat to that will be eliminated. And so as the wise men don't go back and report where Jesus is, Herod takes matters into his own hand and has every boy under the age of two killed. And this actually kind of fits with the kind of person in history we, we know that, that Herod was. Herod was a little crazy. 
Um, Herod was egotistical, narcissistic, a bit of a psychopath, paranoid that someone was always after his throne, um, threatened by any challenge to his power. He actually killed some of his own sons because he thought they were plotting against him. Uh, And uh, Augustus actually is quoted as saying, it's better to be Herod's swine than his sons. It's better to be a a, a pig of his than a son because at least the the pigs aren't a threat to his power, so he's not going to kill his pigs. But he will murder his own children if they are a threat to his power. And so there's this threat that is presented to to Herod and his power, his autonomy, his rule over his kingdom. He's opposed to that threat. He's opposed to Jesus as king. And this is a response that, that we still see today. And for some of us, this has been our story throughout life. Maybe this is still part of your story, and you're still wrestling with this, that there's this idea that, you know what, I am opposed to any threat to my own autonomy, to anything that, 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 that threatens my power over my own life. Because in my kingdom, that is my life, in my little domain, my little chunk of real estate, I'm the king. Nobody else is. Nobody else gets to tell me what to do. Nobody gets to tell me how to live. Nobody gets to tell me how to live my life. And so I am opposed to anyone or anything that comes along and, and, and says that. And so there, there, this idea of I'm opposed to Jesus that comes along and says, I, I don't need some religion. I don't need any God. I don't need some church. I don't need some old, outdated book to tell me how to live. I'm opposed to Jesus as king. That's the response of Herod, and that's the response of, of many of us. The second response is seen by the religious leaders the Jewish priests and the scribes, when they, were, when they were asked, hey, tell us about this Messiah, and they dismissed Jesus as king. They just kind of blew it off. They don't come off as opposed. They just come off as indifferent. I mean, they quote Micah 5, 2, and they're like, oh, yeah, he's going to be born in Bethlehem, which from where they were standing was only about five miles away, but they don't bother to go and check it out for themselves. I mean, you would think as this, like, this caravan of magi and wise men looking, all kinds of fancy from this foreign country show up and go, where is the king of the Jews? You would think that would make them go, oh, maybe something's happening. Maybe we should go with them. But they don't. They're, they're dismissive of Jesus as king. And that was actually the majority of the religious leaders throughout the time of Jesus. Yeah, they're, oh, certainly, well, the Messiah wouldn't come from this place. The Messiah wouldn't hang out with these kind of, of people. We don't know who this guy is. We, we, whatever, like, you're crazy. They're dismissive of Jesus. And, and for many people, that's, that's how we live today. Like this is, and this, this, this one right here, being dismissive of Jesus as king, is one of like the plagues of modern Western Christianity. Where it's like, I'm cool with Jesus, and you know, he's my friend, and like, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Christian, but he's not my king. Like, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to follow him. I'm, I'm not going to give my life to this. I'm just kind of dismissive of, of Jesus as king. And so it's like, man, hey, you want to be a part of a faith community, a part of a church, a part of a group of people that are pursuing Jesus together and trying to figure out who he is in this place and we're worshiping him together and we're doing life and, it's, and, and we're, we're a light in a community. And it's like, nah, not really. I mean, I, I, I believe in God. I said a prayer once. I don't really need to be a part of the church. I like sleeping in on Sundays. Or hey, do you want to you read God's word and, and Gosh, I mean, we just see like the, the depths of the beauty and how our minds can be blown and you can get to know God better and you can get to know who you are and what he has for you and you can have a relationship with him encountered through his word. And, ah, nah, I'll just listen to my pastor. That's dangerous. <laughs> or, or just this, this, or like, you know, like, hey, man, when you become a follower of Jesus and you're part of a church, you're on mission. 
Like we are, we are part of God's rescue plan to a broken and hurting world to bring the hope and the light of Jesus to the people around us. Do you want to be a part of that? Do you want to be a part of something bigger than yourselves? Like, I don't know. It seems like it's going to cost a lot to me. And so we have this posture of just being like, yeah, Jesus, but I've got other stuff that I'm busy with that I'm distracted with. Dismissive of Jesus as Lord. And then the final response is the response of the wise men. And that is that they worship Jesus as king. They worship him as king. It is the ultimate response. That when the wise men show up, they recognize him for who he is. And they fall down to their knees. They prostrate themselves, head to the ground, like bow down in worship. I mean, can, can you picture this? These magi, these wise men, in their own country, in their own land, they're a big deal. They are wealthy. They are prominent. They, they are, again, they, are, they, can, they can read the stars. They can interpret dreams. They're religious leaders. They're a big deal. And they look the part, and they are dropping down to their faces in front of a toddler. This, this sign of, like, surrender of, of, oh, my gosh, this is the true king. The sign of reverence and honor and submission and, and this coming to a place where it's not about my throne and my kingdom and my desires. My entire life is about him. The surrender, this posture of, of surrender, of reverence, of whenever I see who the real king is, all of a sudden what I thought my kingdom was is nothing. We bow down and worship. We can be opposed to Jesus. We can be dismissive of Jesus. Or we can bow down and worship him as king. And so as we move into a Christmas a Christmas week, as we get ready to celebrate, as we celebrate on Christmas Eve, the, you know, the, the coming of Jesus, woo, and we get really excited about that, and we should. Maybe the question that we need to ask and we need to wrestle with is, which one of those three am I? Am I opposed? Am I dismissive? Or am I on my face in front of the King of Kings? The primary emphasis throughout the New Testament is on that kind of identity of Jesus, that he is the King, that he is the Lord. This is why the invitation and the emphasis throughout the New Testament by Jesus himself and then the apostles and the early church, the invitation is always to follow him. He says, come follow me. The apostles declare the message that Jesus is Lord. Come follow him. Not come believe in me, not come just go to church or, or do religious things, but follow the king of kings. The, the, the idea that I give my allegiance to my king, I follow my king wherever he leads and whatever it costs me. I'm following him because he's the king. And some of us, you hear that and we, we, we bristle back, we resist that because it's just, there is, there is something in us that rises up and we're like, mm, ah, no, 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 no. Again, because I don't want anybody telling me how to live or what to do, how to live my life, how to carry myself, how to think, how to act. Like, I, 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 don't, I don't want that. I, I, I got to have control. I got to have autonomy. I don't want Jesus as my king. I would rather remain opposed. I would rather remain dismissive. And the idea that someone else could have say over my life, it bothers me. But may I suggest that if that's you, or if that's ever been you, or in the future when that is you, because we kind of go through these seasons where it is me, and when it's not me, I'm like, yeah, I'm with Jesus. And you're like, yeah, I don't know today if I want to do what he wants me to do. That if that's where we're at, let me suggest that the reason we resist Jesus as king is because we often misunderstand the kind of king that he is. We get a picture in our, our mind of a king that was the kind of king that Jesus, his contemporaries in the first century, expected him to be. That we have a picture of a king in our, in our mind who's 
maybe power hungry or controlling, one who wants to steal our joy, one who's all about what's best for him, who's about using his people. But at those moments, we've got to remember that Jesus may have been the king that was long awaited, but he was the king that was least expected. Because he's not any of those things. He's the servant king. He's the humble king. He's the king of love. He's the king of grace. He's the king who died for his people rather than demanding that his people die for him. He's the king who laid down his life so that we could have ours. Friends, that is a king that is worth following. And so as we sing and as we celebrate and as we, you know, as we look to you know, the manger and the child, may that remind us of the kind of king he is. Humble, loving, giving everything so that we could know him. And may we have the response of the wise men to bow down and say, we worship you because you are worthy. God, that is our prayer, that we would live the kind of lives that declare you are worthy. You're worthy of our praise. You're worthy of our lives. You're worthy of every breath that we take, of everything that we do, because you are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. God, I pray that you would stir something in us through the power of your spirit, that we would see you in that way, that we would worship you with our lives. And in the moments that, that we, we resist that and we don't want that and we want to fight for our own power and our own control over our own little kingdoms, I pray that you would remind us again and again of your goodness, of your love, that you are a king that was not expected. That you are a king who laid down your life so that we could have ours, so that we could follow you, we could pursue you, we could know you, we could be welcomed with open arms into your kingdom. But I pray you would continue to just transform us with that truth today, throughout this season, and every day of our lives.